Thank you, Gary. Um, so some of you know I'm a teacher, so it is very normal for me to uh, prepare lectures. And so sometimes when I'm preparing sermons, I, I think that's what I'm doing. Um, and then Sunday morning hits and you go, what are you doing, you idiot? Um, so th- this, this is very serious. Uh, this is very weighty stuff. And um, so I thank you for, for being here for this. And as Cliff says, and, and I think everyone who comes to pulpit says, uh, try to filter through the chad, right, and, and, and get the, the, the scripture that is coming out of here and just make God speak to us today. Um, so I had Gary uh, read that in the New Living Translation. I just came across that the last couple of weeks and thought it was super clear uh, what the passage is saying. I want to read it again. Just, uh, I'm just going to read to you just the verses 5 through 8, and you can just listen along. This is the English Standard Version. This is what we'll focus on for the, uh, the day today. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Interesting word there, hostile. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When I was 21 years old, um, I had graduated from college in December, and so I had this awkward right semester uh, to wait before I could look for an internship job teaching in the following year. So while I was in credentialing classes, I, I met this guy uh, who worked at a facility that had, that had a home side and a school side on a campus for what's called a level 14 placement. Uh, what that means is that there were 65 males between the age of 14 and 17 who had committed some sort of crime, right? Uh, gun possession, arson, sexual assault, to name a few. And the judge had determined uh, that they could be trusted to complete a program uh, outside of juvenile hall. So if they got in too much trouble at the facility, uh, they would take what they called a T-ride. Uh, they would be terminated from the program and went back to juvenile hall. Uh, like any new teacher, I had been inspired by inner city teacher movies, Right? And I was ready to transform some lives. I assumed these kids had just probably never heard the gospel of education, get a good job, have a nice tame life with a white picket fence. I assumed as soon as they were given this wisdom, they would receive it with tears in their eyes, thank me endlessly for giving them this opportunity to get out of the cycle of poverty and crime. Of course, All this would happen over an orchestra crescendoing in the background as all those surround join in applause for my accomplishments. Uh, You can guess by my hyperbole here, this did not happen. Um, I've never been laughed at more in my entire life. Uh, I've never had my way of life questioned more than at what I call the prison school. These teenage males were not envious of my safe future, my beautiful wife, and my five-year plan. On the contrary, they thought my life sounded boring. They talked of getting out of the program and going back to the adrenaline rush of drive-by shootings, drugs and alcohol, sex with any girl that would consent. When I warned that these actions would clearly have consequences for them and those around them, that they'd probably die before they reached 30, they would respond, why would I want to be old? 
As harmful as their system sounded to me, mine was completely meaningless to them. Our two systems of thinking, our paradigms, our flow of logic, were in complete contrast to one another. It's this type of polar opposition that we'll be discussing today and next week in Romans 8. We're going to analyze the system of the flesh this week, and we'll analyze the system of the spirit next week. So we can kind of begin with the bad news, right, of, of who we are, and end with the good news of who we can be next week. As we look at this passage, I want to kind of reiterate again and again as we're going through this, four truths that Paul teaches us about this system of flesh. Four truths that we see in Romans 5 through 8. First, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Second, to set the mind on the flesh, what's the consequence? It's death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Today we're going to look at these truths uh, for the sake of evangelism, uh, that we might better know how to bring the gospel to those who live according to the flesh. Next week we'll look at these truths as kind of warnings for us Christians uh, that we will not also fall into that pattern of setting our minds on the things of the flesh and entering a cycle of uh, living as if we were in the flesh. I want to start today by just making sure we're framing this conversation in compassion. Um, it's, it's a weird thing to be preaching about others, right? And, and so I, this, you'll, you'll see that the whole point is definitely not let's go you know, talk mess about people who aren't here. That's the opposite concept. Let's have compassion so we'll kind of begin with this, this concept of sadness for the loss. Uh, our position toward the loss should not be one of anger, right? God will fulfill that role uh, when, when needed. Yours is to be compassionate. Let's start out by talking about the, the position of the loss. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses. What is the position of the lost? They're in a state of death. It's pretty intense. They're zombies, right? They're mindless. Their minds have been numbed to the truth. Their eyes have been shut to the truth. Their ears cannot hear truth. They can't reason properly. Yes, God has written the concept of himself on the hearts of men. Yes, the eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the beginning of creation, so there isn't any excuse, but he has not given them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can crack the code to these things. Mankind cannot decipher the things of God. We've been tainted by sin and cannot understand the language. And again, what we're kind of focusing on today is the logic. They cannot ascertain the logic of God. Only the members of the Trinity can do that. So please understand that every human on the planet is naturally in a state of hopelessness. What is the position of the lost? They're in what I'm going to refer to today as like a sin loop. They're in a sin loop, and they can't get out. They live according to the flesh, meaning they listen to the sinful flesh inside of them. As they listen to the flesh, and most likely probably some sort of demonic, why I did that today like three times practicing, demonic is the word. Everybody want to practice this or it's just me? Probably just me. Demonic forces that have been given authority to deceive them. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, the pursuit of wealth, possession, highs, accolades at work, simple entertainment at home, uh, appearance of self-righteousness, perfection, apart from God, sexual immorality of many kinds. And the more they engage in these habits of the sinful flesh, 
the more their lives are according to the flesh, the more they are characterized by sin. As you take kind of an aerial picture of these lives, you can see their entire lives have been kind of tainted, infiltrated, diseased by sin. And here's what happens, right? The more that sin takes them over, the more hostile they become to God and the things of God, whether they know it or not. And the more they hate the things of God, this is the depressing part, right? The more they get overtaken by sin. They're in a sin loop. But again, what is the position of loss? Let's, let's get some context here. It's the same position that you had in your trespasses. There, there is no us versus them in this conversation. They are hopeless as you were hopeless. They cannot please God just as you were unable to please God. They're in a tragic state and they should be pitied, not hated, not condemned by believers. Their sin has already condemned them. They don't need your judgment to kind of make them more condemned. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. They need your compassion. They need your sorrow and your tears for their current state and their trajectory. They need you to preach them the gospel of the good news. That you were also once far off. Yeah? And now you've been grafted in. That you too were an enemy of God. In the middle of your attack, He sent Christ to die for your sins. So that's the position, the state of those who live according to the flesh. Now let's transition to the system of logic. By, by the way, as, as a teacher, I, I just want to make sure. Are you guys using my incredible note paper that, that you got? Okay. Um, so that, that's all my fault. Um, Dina gave me every possibility to get it done on time when she was here, and I didn't. And so then when I got here today, I looked for the right paper and all that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't figure, so I just hacked some paper in half and said, well, we'll call it a day. So hopefully you're getting some of this stuff now. Understanding the logic of the loss. The logic of the loss is created by that sin loop that we just talked about. Now let's kind of define logic uh, for this context that we're talking about. We're talking about a system of what makes sense to you as a person. A system that you engage, a database that you access every time you make a decision. This concept of logic and belief and action comes up so often in my English classes that at some point in my teaching career I kind of created a whole theory on ideology. I usually teach this concept over three to four, di- three to four days. So uh, buckle up. We've got about four hours of nerdiness coming. No, I'm just kidding. So we'll, we'll, do, we'll just do kind of a flyby uh, to get, uh, get you a feel for how we're developing this concept of a sin logic that can seep into every aspect of your life. Let me throw a few definitions at you for thinking through any worldview. Uh, and today we'll kind of think through how these terms uh, can be understood uh, for those who live according to the flesh as opposed to living according to, according to the Spirit. We won't have time to look at all of these definitions that I'm going to give you today, but hopefully uh, we'll get a couple examples for a couple of them, and you can kind of see how you could apply that process to better understanding uh, the needs of your neighbors. So we've got some, some big words here. Axioms, paradigms, schema, metaphysics, epistemology, 
worldview, um, so an axiom, an assumed truth upon which all other truths are built, right? Paradigms, groups that uh, agree to the same belief system. Schema, right? I think we've talked about this before, the building blocks of experience that creates our kind of empirical evidence to support our opinions. Are we, are we doing okay so far? We'll, we'll get to this stuff, okay? Epistemology, what sources do we trust for truth? And lastly, worldview, how do you engage your daily experiences? So let's talk about axioms for a little bit. So at the foundation of, of kind of what we talk about when we talk about ideology or what we refer to as axioms, these are the basic truths, these are the givens of our life. These are truths that we do not question. A basic human example would be like, gravity brings me down to earth every time, no matter how high I jump, right? So this axiom, it influences our actions, right? If we get to a next, next to a cliff, we become more cautious because we remember our assumption, right, our axiom that gravity is going to work right here like it did over there. Axioms are important. They help us to not worry about everything all the time. Can you imagine if you walked into a room and you're, there's like ropes and different things on the side of the wall, you're looking for things because you're not sure, okay, does this room have gravity in it like the last one did? Right? You don't want to go through your whole life having to question every, situ- every single situation. But when axioms are wrong, now we've got a problem. For instance, if you have an assumption that there is no God, now you've created an entire system of logic that is flawed at its most crucial level. Again, recognize that axioms are the foundation for everything. Everything you believe to be true. And we know that what you believe inevitably influences what you do. Those who are in the flesh function every single day with an axiom that there is no God. Consider how that changes their lives. Consider how that would change your life if there was no God. I'll be honest. If there there was some study that came out that 100% proved, hey, we've figured out there is no God. I would wake up every day a lot more selfish. I'd wake up every day and think about my own gain, my own desires, my own future goals. And, and this may sound weird, but I kind of hope that you would agree. I hope that if there was no God, then none of this would make sense to you. Do you follow my logic here? If studies, right, again, show that there was no God, and we came in here every single Sunday and continued business as usual, then it would mean that you were never here for God anyway. Maybe you're here for friendship. Maybe you're here to be a part of something bigger. Maybe you're here for piety and self-pride, building up your own ego based on your sense of goodness. Maybe you're here out of a sense of duty, routine, Maybe we're just here because it's what we've done for a long time. And it seems like what good people do. But Paul is quite clear that there's nothing logical about what we're doing here according to those who believe there is no God. There are two systems that are diametrically opposed to one another and each must naturally seem as foolishness to the other. This can't be avoided. 1 Corinthians 4, 10-13 says, We are fools for Christ. 
goes on to say, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's pretty. I like that. It makes me feel good. That make you feel good? Shouldn't make you feel good, right? Maybe there's some hostility the other direction as we read that. This entire service we're having right now must inherently seem foolish to those who are in the flesh. We have to stop talking like we are one with the world around us. We're not. Should we relate to them? Should we become all things to all people? Of course. But even in doing so, we have to be honest with people that we can't really understand each other. The logic of the follower of Christ is insane to the worldly flesh. And the logic of the flesh at some point better be insanity to you. To give 10% of your income to the church, that's kind of stupid, right? Money is hard to come by. You can't come up if you give it all away. Turning the other cheek, somebody hits you, you say, here, here's my other one. That's kind of stupid. At least once a week at work, I have the opportunity to give advice to an offended student or an offended coach or athlete or, you know, somebody who's in conflict with one another. And my advice is always something to the effect of find something you can apologize for, right, even if you didn't do anything wrong at all. Now, that's biblical wisdom, right? Um, But this biblical approach to interaction with other humans that we see in Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It may work for me, but this biblical wisdom is foolishness to the flesh. It's especially foolishness in the inner city. <laughs> it's just funny. It's just funny when I give that advice. Rigger, are you serious? You want me to apologize for something I haven't done? That's some, and then, you know, some cuss words follow. You want me to let people walk all over me? Then I'll never get respect from no one. And if you know anything about the inner city logic as a system, you know that respect is everything. You don't just go humbling yourself. It could literally get you killed. My biblical wisdom is foolishness within their system. The logic of the worldly flesh should be foolishness to you. Uh, Every once in a while, I get students who try to evangelize to me with their expert knowledge about sex, right? I mean, they're they're 16, 17 years old. They know everything there is but know about it. Ricky, don't you get bored with just one woman? Right? Don't you wish you could be with more than one woman? And remember, kids have changed. Right? So I'm I'm actually scaling it back for you. They're a lot more detailed and explicit in, in how they would phrase questions like that. Earlier in my marriage, I would respond with the logic of marriage over the logic of sleeping around as far as how much damage you can cause to yourself and others. And I still do. Um, But now I've I've kind of changed what what I talk about as I've been married longer. 15 years this month. um, Christian marriage is awesome. It's awesome. And I know that everyone's life experience is is different, and God hasn't chosen that scenario for everyone. So I'm not bragging about this for for me. Uh, I'm I'm doing this to make much of this um, symbol that God has created uh, to represent the Trinity for us and the relationship that God has. Uh, Every year, Emily and I go through new trials. Every year, we face them together. Every year, we are uh, together, even if the, the trial was caused by one or both of us. And because of that, our trust for each other grows. 
our intimacy becomes more authentic. You can't replicate that with five, ten different partners in your lifetime. It just doesn't work logically. The logic of the flesh should be nonsense to those who are in the Spirit. So that's just like a brief look, right, at, at axioms, right? Let, let's see how we can analyze what it means to live according to the flesh through the lens of paradigms. And again, we could do this for a bunch of different concepts. I'm just kind of giving you a couple of these today to kind of get you to start thinking this direction. How can you think about the logic of your neighbors? Sorry, I need a second here. So paradigms. A paradigm is any belief system that kind of grabs a hold of a group Right, of people and convinces them to carry out the same certain set of actions. Uh, you hear this word in the, in, the, in the business world a lot, right? Um, the internet has shifted the paradigm of how you engage customers, right? Uh, my wife and I are kind of hippies and pursue, uh, we pursue paradigms of Eastern medicine over Western medicine. Uh, common core standards, right? They shifted the educational paradigm to overanalyze everything uh, after No Child Left Behind taught us to not analyze anything, right? We could go on, right? We are influenced by paradigms due our, to our race, our nationality, our geographic location, our life station, our time period, our religion, our denomination, okay? The groups we ascribe to shape us. Paradigms shape our beliefs and beliefs shape our actions. I think it's a healthy exercise, again, for all Christians to kind of understand the paradigms of the non-believers near them so they can better understand them and speak in terms that are discernible to these people. So let's take one of our, our local paradigms to study uh, and, and think about how people in your world might, one, set their minds on the things of the flesh, and two, experience hostility toward God. Let's take an easy one, capitalism. I'm going to I'm going to start some fights today. It's our nation's economic system, right? It's, it's our paradigm for how we think about money. Uh, I'm not here to debate what is the best economic system or government system. Um, if we were in North Korea, I would ask us to analyze dictatorship. If we were in Canada, I would ask us to analyze uh, socialism because each system at its axiomatic level, right, gives us different sinful mindsets that create our system of logic. You following? We good? So, as a Christian, you have to be aware that sins in your sphere, because they create the mindsets of the lost, you're attempting to reach. And you need to understand them in order to speak their language. All right, capitalism, let's bring it. So capitalism, it's married to individualism, right? Uh, they have the same axiom. Self-interest should be the base of, basis of all decisions. Now, in the hands of Christians, capitalism is beautiful, Right? Just like Acts showed us in the hands of Christians, collectivism, or if we could use the scary word, communism, it's also a beautiful thing. Acts chapter 2, 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That sounds kind of like... And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as needed. So again, okay, both, both can be good. Self-interest someday in heaven will be beautiful. Because when I pursue what I want, when I'm holy, it will also benefit those around me, and it will glorify God. There's a day coming when self-interest is going to be awesome. But within the mindset of the flesh, my self-interest often comes at the cost of others. 
fleshly self-interest will make us in contrast to the admonitions of the Bible and therefore make us hostile to the things of God. Um, did I put the Sermon on the Mount in slides in there? Hopefully I did. If, if not, well, I'll just kind of run through some stuff. Um, so looking at the Sermon on the Mount, you see, I mean, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Matthew, there's just instance after instance of self-interest. Matthew, uh, let's, I'll just kind of fly through. So Matthew 5, 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Like we said earlier, if anyone, uh, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other one also. That makes no sense. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus is, he's meddling. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This stuff makes sense to you guys? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where, there, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, I got into the stock market a couple years ago. I'm a, I'm a kind of a stock market nerd. Can you imagine giving this speech at a stakeholders meeting? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Right? The whole point of stock market is inflation, Right, is just increasing, increasing, increasing the things of this earth. Uh, it goes on, right? 25 and on talks about don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, uh, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Uh, not life more than food, not in the, bod- the body more than clothing. Uh, he-, he has this example of the bird of the air, right? They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? goes on and talks about, right, we've got the lilies of the fields, all this kind of stuff. He gives the admonition at the end. The Gentiles seek all these things. The Gentiles do that. Your heavenly Father, <laughs> this phrase is awesome, the heavenly Father knows you need them all. Why are we freaking out? Why are we focusing on that? He knows you need those things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's crazy to me about this passage is it was written 2,000 years ago, right? This is, this is not written in America, and yet these paradigms haven't changed. The paradigm of the spirit and the flesh are framed the exact same way. You cannot serve God and what? Money. That's weird to me that he's, he's chosen. I mean, that's a strong contrast, right? Uh, he, he could have chosen, you cannot serve God and the gods of Rome, you cannot serve God and your own sexual desires. You cannot serve God and the government. You cannot serve God and Pharisaic religion. All kinds of things that he posted. But this contrast boldly stayed like that. Why does he choose to talk about money? I have a theory, right? It's just a theory. I'm just a man. Uh, because money creates a logical system within the system of the flesh that traps you forever. Forever. Your entire life. Right, we have phrases for, for this, right? The rat race, the hamster wheel. Proverbs 22 says, The rich rule over the poor, and here is America, the borrower is slave to the lender. 
This is the American system. You go to school until you're 18, maybe 22 if you want to get another degree, 26 if you want to get another degree. You go to school longer so you can get a better job, so you can get a bigger house, so you can have a bigger mortgage. 15 years is enough. Let's go 30. Maybe we can go 40. And what happens at the end of that 30-year mortgage? It's kind of interesting, right? About how long do you work? About 30 years. Right? 30, 40 years. Mortgage about 30, 40 years. This is on purpose. The system is set up to entrap you your entire life. You're a slave to our economic system until you die. Milton Friedman, one of the greatest economic minds of our time, advocated for capitalism because it is founded naturally on the desire towards self-interest. In other words, capitalism capitalizes on our greedy nature. That this is who we are already. Might as well use it to make some money. This hardly sounds like biblical wisdom. And now let's review why we just took this you know, weird detour on, on capitalism, why we're talking mess about capitalism. Again, we could have done this for a ton of different paradigms. A paradigm founded on Christ influences our beliefs and causes us to act in ways that are contrary to sinful nature, but any other paradigm that is not 100% based on Christ will at some point prove to be a system that conforms your mind. Apparently singing and talking for 40 minutes is a lot. I thought I could do it. It conforms your mind to its flow of logic. Even if these systems aren't inherently sinful, they will slowly steal your affections. You will not be able to serve God and these systems. White paradigms have beliefs that will take you away from God. Hispanic paradigms have beliefs that, beliefs that will take you away from God. African American paradigms have beliefs that will take you away from God. Business paradigms, network marketing paradigms, don't get me started. <clears throat> Sports paradigms. I'm a coach. I get it. Democratic Party, Republican Party, third party, even nonprofit organizations. Any system that is not founded on God has the potential to go to war with the logic of the Spirit. And as soon as that conflict is brought to light, there will be hostility towards God. There are games I got to watch on Sunday. I can't go to church. I believe in my body, my choice. My sexuality, my choice. And if God will want me to change that, he isn't a loving God. You heard these, these rationales before? No, I can't talk about the things of God with a customer. Religion's a touchy subject. I might lose that customer if I bring up a hot topic. I had this experience as a basketball coach. We were having a team meal, a team meal before a home game, and all of a sudden this conversation about religion breaks out. I'm going, oh, shoot. Right. These girls are already at each other's throats all the time. And if you know anything about sports, if you're at each other's throats before a game, that game is not going to go well. So here I am. I'm torn at this moment, right? Do I go with my role as a coach and bring them back together? Do I go with my role as a Christian and try and give some insight? The paradigms of the world at some point will prove to be in conflict with the paradigms of Christ. Again, as I was writing this, um, it got too long. We can't go through all these kind of concepts, but uh, hopefully these two concepts, right? Axioms, 
paradigms, if you just start to have an eye for this, it'll shape the way that you engage the loss. In my 14 years as a teacher, the majority of the time I've been loved by my bosses because my habits are biblical, right? And for the most part, the logic of the Spirit makes you a great employee. But three times in my career, I was almost fired because the logic of the Spirit does not submit to the ever-shifting laws of contemporary society. Do not be surprised when these conflicts arise. Alaska concept I want us again to, to come, come back around to is sympathy. Within reason, maybe even empathy for the lost. A phrase that can be heard in Christian circles from time to time that just baffles me. I don't understand people who, and then you just kind of follow along, right, with whatever sin is repulsing you at the time. Whatever sin is confusing to you, whatever sin is socially unacceptable in your American mind? Really? Is it really that hard to understand? Is it really possible that we've forget, forgotten so quickly who we were in the flesh? Colossians 1.21 It says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. There's that word hostile. But it's not talking about the sinners. Who's it talking about? It's talking about us. That was us. We were hostile to God. New Living Translation says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. Right? Enemies where? In, the, in your logic. You were an enemy of God. Have we really forgotten I mean, I know you haven't forgotten it theologically, right? Because we sing about it every week. The concept is in my prayers every week as we recount our story with God. But practically, I think that some of us forget that we were haters of God. I know this because we can be so impatient with non-believers. We can be so slow to give grace. Grace important, Jim? We're so quick to share our disgust. In classes for uh, marriage and family therapy, uh, my wife Emily would be told by professors to develop a poker face right, uh, in sessions because people are going to reveal shocking confessions to you about their personal lives and you've got to make sure you don't react right, so they don't feel alienated. I've got to tell you that advice, it's really not necessary to me. I'm not shocked when non-believers talk to me about shameful things they've done because I've known my heart a long time. A long time. I may be connected to the Spirit. The Spirit is gracious to me and has saved me from countless times acting on my fleshly impulses, but I'm not so two-faced that I deny that I have those impulses. Are we really that obtuse that lacking in self-awareness that we don't know our natural hearts. The heart is deceptive, deeply wicked. The text here isn't speaking about pagans, barbarians. It's referring to all of us, every human. NIV says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. 
Who can understand it? If someone asks you if you struggle with sin, no, really don't. Incredibly naive. Incredibly ignorant. And at some point, if we can be honest, you're lying to yourself. Here's the point I'm trying to reinforce here. If you as a churchgoer do not see your personal sin, not only are you going to have a strange relationship with God, right? I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't even know how that works, right? Because our story, again, the story we, we, we sing about every week is, I know who I was, and yet you still saved me? So first, if you don't know your sin and the reality of your sin, I don't know how this works with you and God. But second, what we're talking about today, if you can't be honest about who you were, you're going to be of little use to the lost world when you are trying to have evangelistic conversation. The postmodern world is incredibly disgusting. I'm not going to argue with that fact. It's indulgent. It's celebrating sin. So if you want to have a conversation in which you are mystified by the new ways in which mankind is inventing sin, I'll probably go with you for a minute down that road. If you want to rant about how inappropriate it is to engage in pornography or homosexuality or most of what's inherent in the LGBTQI movement, you're correct. God is clear in the text. These sins are not approved of. But if you want to stay in a mystified state about these sins and talk about how incredulous it is to you that people could live in such a way, you're a hypocrite. You're blind. The reason these people can be so caught up in their sin is the same reason you were caught up in your sin. They're in an illogical loop of sin. They aren't enlightened to any other process, to any other thinking. They don't have a choice. I've heard people saying things like, I wish people would just follow God's law. Well, guess what? They're not going to do it. And even if they did, it wouldn't please him, right? That's what we just saw in the text. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So even if these lost people were to somehow be forced to obey God's law, it wouldn't save them. So what would be the point? So that Christians would feel more comfortable? Please, do not pray that your non-believers would stop living in sin. It's not going to save them. Pray that they would fall in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I've shared this example before uh, in men's groups because I, I think it's just so health, helpful. It's a healthy way of perceiving the reason for any righteous action of believers versus any uh, action of non-believers. I was at a family reunion with family from all over the country, uh, and the ones uh, who attend these reunions pretty much uh, identify as Christians. A conversation in a group of males uh, steered towards a discussion uh, about someone they knew who had recently cheated on their wife, sending their family into divorce and all kinds of trauma that followed. One of my family members made a remark about not understanding what would make a man do such a thing. One of my relatives quickly grew a strong 
sincere tone as he said, remember, it is only by the grace of God that we refrain from such sinful acts every day. If God removed that hand of grace for one day, just one day, we'd commit horrible and sinful acts. I've carried that reminder with me ever since. It's just helpful. Uh, we, can, we can forget of our own sins so quickly. We can forget that we've been saved by grace, that we've been made into new creatures by no doing of our own. There's no possibility for us to brag, to feel any superiority over those who do not know Christ. It was a gift. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Have we forgotten? We aren't better than non-believers. We're not. The only difference between us is that when a sinful thought enters our heads, we've got this cool kind of concept, right? We have this like shot collar in our brain. Nice car, man. If I could only... Right? And then there's this voice in my head that goes, Chad, you really going to go down that path again? Last time, do you remember what happened? You started with just envying a dude's car, and there was his old lifestyle, and you were depressed for a week because you crunched the numbers and realized you're not going to get there until you're 75. You really want to do this? You right, Holy Spirit. You right. Good looking out. Right? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit comes often with these reminders. And the more you're in the Word, the quicker His response time is on these trains of thoughts. The non-believer is given no such gift. They're stuck in these spiraling thoughts that lead to spiraling actions and tragic consequences and lives that are full of sadness, regret, shame, longing, even if they won't admit it. You were once hostile to God. Remember that when you're among the lost every day. Feel sympathy, not disgust. I have several coworkers who are are lesbians that I work with on a regular basis. They know who I am. They know what I believe and that we are inherently opposite in our ideology, that there's a conflict there. But they also know that I love them. They know that I have their backs in whatever situations I possibly can. Again, next week we'll get to the warnings and encouragements uh, for Christians within this passage. Uh, And then we'll get into the good news next week of living in the Spirit. But I just want to kind of review our, our main points here for what we're trying to understand about non-believers. Four truths about those who are in the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So do not be surprised by the habits of non-believers. This is simply the product of the mind that is controlled by the flesh. They set the mind, uh, to set the mind on the flesh is death. Non-believers are on a path towards hell. They're already on a trajectory toward condemnation in the next life. They don't need condemnation from you. They need compassion. They need warning. They need compelling. 
they need you to demonstrate the love of Christ. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. While hatred toward God can lie dormant, it will raise its head when the conflict becomes more apparent. There will be times when you are called to shine brightly and blatantly in the darkness. Do not be offended when non-believers respond with hatred. The flesh within them must react like this as a defense mechanism to, pre- to preserve their current constructs of axioms, paradigms, schema, worldview, all of that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Non-believers will blatantly ignore the requirements of God. It's going to happen. While this creates for a society that is frustrating, it's gross, it's inappropriate, it's difficult to be in, it shouldn't surprise us. We too were unable to please God before he saved us. Thank God for his graciousness to you, that you are able to produce good works and pray for non-believers that Christ would save them for their chains of sin in the sin loop. Amen? Um, that is the end of our sermon today. Um, i got to get back on stage, right? Which uh, creates an awkward transition. Uh, which, which awkward transitions create awesome opportunities because I've wanted to do this for a long time. So I'm going to get back on stage, but it's going to take me at least a minute, right? Right? What are you guys going to do? While I'm, what if you guys like prayed and stuff? That'd be cool, right? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Um, so with somebody next to you, pray for somebody you love. Just that simple. Pray for somebody you love. When we're ready and that you hear music going, you can wrap it up and we'll, we'll sing one last song.